0: Probably my favorite color pattern of all time is a bumblebee called Bombus Rufofasciatus (laughs) or Fasciatus, (laughs) which I've never seen in person because it lives in the Himalayan mountains and in Kashmir. (laughs) But I've seen a dead one and it has this amazing, gorgeous color pattern of oranges and yellows and whites. And red, and I just think it's, like, the most beautiful
1: bee. And it's on, like, my bucket list to see it alive someday in the field. This is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie, a science writer at Science News for Students. I'm absolutely buzzing with excitement over this episode because today we're talking bees. Every so often, I'm lucky enough to catch wind of a science project that I really have to share. That's the case with the topic of this week's show and the research of my guest, Michelle Duenis. Michelle is a professor of biology at St. Vincent College in La Trobe, Pennsylvania. She studies bumblebee ecology, nutrition, genetics, and conservation. I met Michelle in 2017. For a story I was reporting, I tagged along with her as she caught bees in this beautiful, flower-filled meadow. That was part of an ambitious study of bumblebee health and how it's impacted by pesticides, nutrition, and climate change. That summer, Michelle visited dozens of sites in the Sierra Nevada mountains and collected over 700 bumblebees which she'd flash freeze and take back to the lab to analyze. She's also done some pretty neat work on bumblebee colors. Michelle takes her passion for bees past her research and onto the roller derby track. She skates for the Steel City Roller Derby in Pittsburgh. As she races around, she goes by her skater name, Polly Nader. But Michelle also mascots for the team as Derby, dressed, of course, as a bee. Thanks for joining me, Michelle.
0: Yeah, no problem.
1: So let's start with a super basic question. Um, why do you study bumblebees?
0: Um. So I think it was 2007 when all of the news reports started coming out about colony collapse disorder. And I was like, oh, I really love bugs and I want to go to grad school to study bugs. So I'm going to save the bees. But then I got to grad school and I did one rotation in May Berenbaum's lab looking at uh, honeybee nutrition. And then I did another rotation in Sydney Cameron's lab looking at bumblebees. And she just really like sold me on bumblebees. They're so big and so fluffy and so cute. And she already had this like small project going, um, studying bumblebees in Mexico and Central America. And she said, oh, you know, this is just a really small project, but you could expand this into a project. And I really fell in love with the idea of getting to travel and study these fluffy creatures. So that's when I really fell in love with bumblebees and like over time, I've just like slowly been like becoming more in love with them. The more I learn about their biology, like they can live in crazy places like the Arctic and they have all these amazing color patterns. I just love everything about them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we'll definitely talk about a whole bunch of that stuff. Um, I Mm -hmm. think before we get into the work that you've done, I am wondering if there are any super common misconceptions people tend to have about bumblebees, things that it'd be really good to like right off the bat um, just address.
0: Oh, the most common one is that bumblebee is just a species. (laughs) Most people think that bumblebees are just one species of bee. And a lot of them think that Carpenter bees and bumblebees are the same thing. Um, But there's at least 250 species of bumblebees worldwide. Um, Yeah, I see there's this one article that I've been seeing passed around a lot on the Internet that says that the bee has been named the most important creature on Earth or something. And the whole article, I can't remember where I saw it, and the whole article just refers to bees as if they're, like, one species. <laughs> but there's at least, like, 20,000 different species of bees worldwide.
1: Oh, my goodness. So that's probably,
0: yeah, that's probably the most common conception is people are always surprised when I tell them that there's more than
1: one bumblebee species. hmm Yeah. So I really want to talk about the Sierra Nevada Bumblebee Health Project. Um, I mentioned for listeners in the intro that I got to watch you catch um, and collect these bumblebees in the field, and it seems like you had this huge gargantuan project to just collect hundreds of them. Um, do you mind sharing what the goal of that work was? What were you trying to learn?
0: Yeah, um, and so that that project's still ongoing now, and we are trying to um, use all of this biological information. Information that we can collect from bumblebees in the wild and see if the biological information that we collect from them can tell us a little bit about their health and how they might be responding to the effects of climate change, specifically in the Sierra Nevada in California. And part of the project was I collected bees really high up in the Sierra Nevada. Um, I think the highest I went was 2,300 meters, which I'm really bad at math, so I don't know how many feet that is, maybe. <laughs> uh well, really hot in elevation. That's really isolated. Um, so you know, we assume that it's a more slightly more pristine environment. And then I also collected them like at the base of the Sierra Nevada in the Central Valley, where it's really agriculturally intensive. It's really, really hot down there. So you find bumblebees really only at the beginning of like March and April, and then they're gone because it just gets way too hot. And there's certainly not nearly as many different types of flowers for them to feed on down there. So I collected along this like gradient of elevation, but also land use to see if there were any differences um, in the bee populations at these lower elevations that have a lot of agriculture versus these higher elevation sites that are very pristine and have lots of different types of flowers they can feed on.
1: Ah, okay. So, and what were those, um, what was the biological information that you were trying to get from them? What, what exactly were you looking at?
0: So, one of them is looking at the genes that they're expressing and specifically the genes that they're expressing in their brains. Um, so last summer I went back out to UC Riverside and dissected all these brains out of these bees, which is not, well, for me, in terms of um insects bumblebees are pretty large so like if you're you know of like all the insects you could dissect brains out of they're probably the easiest but dissecting brains is not very (laughs) easy um but the in in their brains they're expressing a lot of genes that uh that are then signaling to other organs in their body how they should respond to things they're encountering in the environment so like if they eat a pesticide, those pesticides, like specifically, you might have heard of neonicotinoid pesticides, they've been in the news a lot lately, they affect the nervous system of insects because they're relatives of nicotine. And so if they're affecting the nervous system, there's also going to be brain signals involved in that. So um, you can see brain genes that are being expressed in response to eating something toxic in the environment. Or brain signals are related to insulin and processing sugar. So it's going to be brain signals related to nutrition too. Um, so looking at the genes that they're expressing in their brains in response to um, their environment, good and bad things in the environment. Yeah. So, so uh-huh?
1: when you say that they're expressing genes, you mean that um, certain genes are active and that can tell you about what's going on in their bodies or what's going on in their brains?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, you might expect maybe a a bee that might have eaten some pesticides in the environment to, you might hypothesize that like that bee would have more detoxification genes being expressed than a bee that hasn't been encountering pesticides in the environment. Or um, a bee that's getting really, really good nutrition um, might be have, having different genes involved in breaking down sugars and signaling to the rest of their organs that they should be breaking down sugars. They might have different gene expression patterns than a bee that's got really poor nutrition.
1: Ah, okay. So it kind of helps you zoom in really close to what's actually going on. In the
0: Yeah, body. yeah. And then the other thing that we... So we did the brain the, the bee's brains and we did two different species of bees um Bombus vosnesenskii which is the yellow faced bumblebee and then Bombus melanopagus uh i think the common name is the black tailed bumblebee i usually call it the black butt bumblebee and then <laughs> um we also collected so we also collected pollen from each bee so when i i think i did this when we were out in the field together um after i'd stunned the bee i scraped the pollen off of their legs and then what we did is we submitted that one of those pollen, so they got two legs that they collect pollen on. The pollen from one leg um, was sent off for what's called metabolomics. So it's like doing a huge nutrition profile of all the stuff that's in the pollen, so like lipids, proteins, um, these things that are called secondary metabolites that some plants um, make looking at all that stuff that might be in the pollen. And then the pollen from the other leg of the same bee, we sent off to sequence the DNA in it to identify the actual plant species that were in it.
1: Ah, okay. So you were trying to get an idea of the nutritional value in the the, the pollen and then also making sure you knew what plants they were in the first place. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about catching the bees and stunning them and how, yeah, just what you would do when you were out in the field on any given day? Yeah, so
0: I would show up to a field site and I was trying to get um, 20 samples total from each of my field sites. So I had like really good replication. And so I'd show up and I'd set up my, my office which was basically a table. And sometimes I, I got a tent later on because I was getting really somber, but I'd set up like my, my mobile processing office, which was like a collapsible table, a liquid nitrogen tank, and then like my deck chair. And I'd set that up next to my truck. And then I'd go out and catch bees and I'd try to, as soon as I'd catch five bees and I didn't want them to get too hot in a tube because the thing with studying gene expression is it can change really quickly. So if I got a bee super stressed and hot inside of a tube, it might start expressing a bunch of heat shock genes that have more to do with it being hot inside the tube I put it in rather than what it was dealing with the environment. So I catch five bees and I run back to my table and then I would put the tube like for just a few seconds into the liquid nitrogen and that would cool, basically put them to sleep. They're not dead, but it just puts them to sleep so that then I can identify what species they are and scrape off their pollen loads. And then while they were asleep, I'd I'd do that and then put the pollen and the bee back in the liquid nitrogen to
1: kill it. Mm -hmm. And then you would take them back to the lab for whatever, for, for I guess brain dissections. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah. Um So I think I'm not sure if we've mentioned this so far, but how many bees did you end up collecting for that project?
0: 777 bees total from two different species, the Bombus melanopagus
1: and Bombus vosnesenskii. Ah. Yeah, and what did have you ended up learning so far or what have you learned so far from the project?
0: Um, so far we, well, because of that delay in the funding, we had to put a little pause on the project for a little bit, but we were able to get metabolomics data and we're seeing really cool, um, differences in the nutrition that the, um, Bombus melanop- melanopagus is feeding on versus the Bombus vasinsenskiae, which is really, really cool. And we can kind of see, um. And we think it might be related to the plant species that they're feeding on. So, um, yeah, so in some places where I caught the bees on really similar flowers, it looks like they're collecting the similar kinds of the pollen in their legs had similar nutrition profiles. Um, but then I would collect them at different sites on different flowers and the nutrition profiles would change completely. And so it does seem to really matter what actual flowers they're visiting because e- each flower has a really different nutritional makeup. And we're hoping that we may be able to with the DNA sequencing of the pollen match the nutrition of the pollen to the actual species that they're feeding on and see if um those those match up to each other.
1: Ah, okay. So you're able to at least so far you can tell that um their nutritional profiles are, you know, sort of linked to what it is that they're eating. Um even across bee species is that a good way to sum it up? Yeah, yeah, that's a great way. Okay. Um and then I guess what other data are you hoping to get out of out of the project? What else do you have left to learn?
0: Um so we still have to the we sent off all the all the um All the RNA, which is uh, the expressed genes in the bees after I extracted that, we sent it off to a sequencing center. So we're waiting to get that data back and see how the genes they're expressing might correspond to the um, nutrition in the environment. And then we're also hoping to look at their guts and see if there's any differences in the parasites and the pathogens that they have in their guts
1: in the high altitude versus the low altitude. Ah, okay. So, um, is that a common problem that, that bumblebees have as far as health, something that affects, um,
0: Oh oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's some, some work that I've, uh, worked on when I, uh, when I was still at the university of Illinois is specifically one parasite that I looked at was Nosema bombi. It's, um, it's a, it's not a fungus, but it's closely related to fungi. It's called a microsporidian parasite. And, um, it can be really, really bad for bees if they get it. It basically gives them like a version of bee dysentery. Oh, and, no. um, yeah, it's really bad. Um, and one of my collaborators, uh, Jamie Strange, who's now at Ohio State, he found that bumblebees that have really high infections, males specifically, they get so, fat and engorged with this parasite that they can't actually even mate with the females anymore. Um, So that's like one parasite that we know can have really um, dramatic effects on bumblebees in their health. Um, But there's lots of other parasites that affect them too. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like that's a, that one's a major example of like a a life cycle disruption. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, And then if I recall you were also looking at pesticides that were on the bees themselves or on the pollen is that right yeah so we're hoping also
0: um not sure how we're gonna do it yet um is to also look and see if the bees have pesticides in them themselves too and if they have been exposed to pesticides in the field um how are maybe their genes responding to that okay yeah
1: um the last thing I wanted to ask about related to this work was um it's also tied into climate change, right? Yes, uh-huh. And so what um what questions are you exploring uh with regards to how climate change might be affecting bee's health and how are you doing that? So
0: mostly we're thinking about climate change in a very specific way in the way that it has um affected California and the Central Valley. So there's been long, long periods of drought in California, um, which we both know from living there. (laughs) Um, And uh, that's just one consequence of how climate change has affected California. So um, specifically looking at how those differences in water availability in the Central Valley and up high in the Sierras might affect, might be related to bumblebee health. Um, And then also, agriculture and high industrial agricultural scenarios, um, they're not really a separate problem from climate change um, because they kind of intensify it, um, especially when you plant these huge monoculture crops and you limit um, the food availability and the plant diversity in a region you're Directly feeding into climate change and then also carbon emissions that come from agriculture. So, looking at kind of the, the synerg- synergistic interactions between um, agricultural intensification and climate change with each other.
1: Ah, uh, okay. And then um, you're looking at how that will affect bees' nutrition through their nectar and pollen, is that right? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So some of those results we're going to have to wait a while for because your project's on hold because the USDA office moved to Kansas City. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about how that decision has impacted the science that you do?
0: Yeah. um, This project has basically been on hold for about a year um, because of that relocation. So Sunny Purdue was the a recent appointee to head the USDA, and he decided to move a few of the USDA agencies' headquarters to Kansas City, Missouri, instead of Washington, D.C., and the rationale was behind that was to move them out there so that they would be closer to farmers. Um, one of those agencies that he decided to move was NIFA, which is the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and that is who my um, grant funding is currently coming through. But with that move, um, I think the number is 92% of employees either, uh, left or were fired with that move. Oh wow! And so, uh, for about a year, there just was literally no one in awards management to process the conversion of my grant. So I left, uh, University of California, Riverside, because I got a faculty job at St. Vincent College. And so I was in the process of trying to move that money from UC Riverside to St. Vincent. And it just was really bad timing because that's also when they moved the agency and reduced it dramatically in size. And so for about a year, there's just literally been no one to even no one's been home to even process the conversion. So, and we couldn't access the money because it was back at USDA. So we just kind of had to sit and wait for the money to come back, but we got an award notification this week. So the money's back finally.
1: Hooray. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's like a real example of how, you know, this sort of regulatory decision or something can, can impact science that scientists do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the, the brains that I got, so I, We were out there together in 2017, and then I went back last summer to dissect out all the brains and extract the RNA from them. And then they just kind of sat in an ultra-cold freezer for about a year waiting for the money to come through so that we could actually sequence all the genes.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so more results are on their way, though.
0: Yeah, yeah, finally! I'm so happy it finally got processed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's talk about some of the work that came before this. So, you've also done a lot of work with bees in the lab. Um, and I'm just curious what, um, what it's like to work with bumblebees in the lab, what it's like to raise colonies, and, and some of what that work explored.
0: Yeah, so the, so part of this grant was doing paired field studies, but also working with bees in the lab to kind of simulate smaller controlled studies. So out in the wild, we don't, you know, I don't really know what's happened to these bees before I collect them. But in the lab, we can simulate specific scenarios to see how it affects their gene expression and then compare these highly controlled experiments to what we see in the wild and try to infer from that what might've happened to them. So um there were some experiments that we ran where we fed them, um, the main point was to give them two different pollens of different nutritional qualities one from a flower that had um, lower contents of fats and proteins, and one that had higher contents of fats and proteins, and saw, see how it affects queens and how well they're able to establish nests. And um, to see, yeah, to see how those two differences in nutritional profiles might affect. Um, their ability to start nests and the one that had the pollen of lower nutritional quality had kind of like a a delayed start in her, in their nests and their young developed a little bit slower than the pollen with higher nutritional quality. So it kind of, um, what we saw in the bees in the lab is that it looked like their development was moving a little bit slower on a lower quality diet rather than a higher quality diet.
1: Ah, okay. And that probably makes a big difference for their, their, the success of their colony or, um. Yes.
0: The tricky thing about working with a social organism like bumblebees is that, like, if you're trying to figure out how well they are being able to go from one generation to the next, um, the worker, it's tricky because the workers don't actually produce most of the offspring. They may, make eggs that will sometimes make males. So that's the other thing that's tricky about bees is that um, males come from unfertilized eggs and females come from fertilized eggs. And then on top of that, the workers don't actually make most of the offspring. They they Their ovaries aren't developed and they don't mate, so they can lay male eggs and so they will, will contribute like, males to the next generation but they can't make queens which are the egg making baby makers of the bees oh wow so that's so weird yeah it's really yeah and it adds like this layer of complexity on trying to figure out like how like so if something affects the health of the workers that's not going it's going to indirectly affect the health of the whole colony um not directly, because they're not the ones that are actually contributing to the next generation, but they are the ones that are feeding all the babies, right? So if they, if something inhibits the way that they feed all their sisters, that's going to then ultimately affect how many individuals then make it on to the next
1: generation. Ah, okay. And actually, that is a pretty good segue into something else that I wanted to ask you about. Um, one thing I learned from you when we met um, was... I actually didn't know much about the life cycles of bees and didn't really know that Queens are these sort of like enterprising creatures that strike out on their own and, and start these colonies. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit of what that's like? Um, you know, how, when that happens in the year and what, what the process is? Oh yeah,
0: sure. And it's a little different depending on what part of the country you're in this whole. So like down in, in Southern California and Riverside, this whole, process like the whole life cycle of a bumblebee colony is like scrunched all into like two months because there's just not flowers and it's too hot for them the rest of the year but um this is kind of more drawn out and considered like the quote-unquote more normal life cycle where I am in Pennsylvania just because we have um a much longer period of flowers available but basically what happens so like in Pennsylvania in the fall in like uh probably October and maybe even also into November, what the colonies start producing what are called giants, And those are the going to be the Queens for the next years. So they go out and they mate with male bumblebees um, in the fall. And then what they do is they go and they collect and eat a lot, a lot of food because they need to build up their fat bodies, which is this basically an organ that kind of functions um well, a lot like fat in humans, but also kind of like their liver because they kind of use it to detoxify stuff. They got to make that really big and fat because they need to store up a bunch of nutrition reserves to survive the winter. So they go out and they mate and then they eat a lot, a lot of food so that they can get big and fat and healthy to survive the winter. And then what they do is they dig into the ground um, and find a good place to hibernate. And so for about... Three months, they'll hibernate by themselves as a single queen in a little hole in the ground. And then when it becomes warm enough again, they'll come back out and that's when they actually start a a new colony of their own. They've already mated in the fall, so they're ready to already start laying eggs. So they'll go out and they'll find a place where that's suitable for their nest. And that can sometimes be like um, under a grass pile or in an old rodent's nest. Um, Or sometimes the crawl space of your house (laughs) 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 or under your deck. Uh, One time I got a call when I was still in California to get a bumblebee colony out of somebody's hot tub. Oh, wow. Yeah, they'll just find any crevice that's kind of like stable enough and big enough to support like a growing colony. They'll nest in there. Um, And so once they pick that spot out and you can I actually saw Queens doing this in my yard yesterday is you can kind of spot a nest searching queen because one she's huge she's like can be like an inch and a half long and two she's not visiting flowers she's kind of zooming around really low to the ground and checking out holes and so they'll like land and maybe they'll crawl into some rocks and then you won't see them for a while and they'll be like oh no that wasn't a good spot and they'll fly back out um and so you can like people could go out in their yards right now if they're in like the Eastern United States and look for these Queens that are buzzing real low to the ground and trying to find a suitable place to nest. And once they figure that out, then they'll lay um, some eggs and they'll make a pot. And what they do is they make this single pot that they fill up with nectar and pollen so that they can just basically sit and incubate their eggs for a couple weeks. Ah. So if you see a bumblebee, Right now, if you go out in your yard and you see a bumblebee and she's got big pollen loads on her legs, that means she's found a good place to start a nest. And now she's building up all those, um, all that nutrition so that she can incubate and sit on her eggs for a couple weeks. Hmm. So then the bumblebees kind of disappear for a little bit while you're waiting for those eggs to develop and the queens are sitting on them. And then as soon as those... Develop into that first group of workers. Then they'll, they're the ones that are going to take care of their sisters. And then the queen just kind of becomes an egg laying machine. So now she's not leaving the hive or the colony anymore. She's just laying eggs. And the workers are responsible for going out and collecting nectar and pollen to feed to the new developing larvae. And so then the colony will build over the spring. Um, and get bigger and bigger, and mostly you'll just see um workers out, and then once it gets to the fall again, then that's when they start
1: making the males and the giants, and they start the whole process over again, uh, okay, but the whole fitness of that colony kind of depends on the first um on the queen, yeah, yeah
0: the whole th- the whole fitness of the colony depends on her surviving that overwintering period and then also being able to get plenty of nutrition when she comes out from overwintering so early blooming flowers that are out right now and that's going to depend on where in the country you live here um actually one th- flower i've been seeing around here in pennsylvania that queens seem to like is called dead nettle it's a european invasive species but i haven't personally been taking it out of my yard since the bumblebee queens seem to like it but it's really important for like bumblebee success, that there's flowers out really early in
1: spring for them to feed on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another part of your previous work that you shared about was um, bumblebee colors. And so I think a lot of people think of bees as just being like yellow and black. Um, Mm -hmm. But you shared with me that bumblebees can actually be really colorful with these oranges and reds and whites, um, white stripes. So what do these stripes actually mean? So
0: the whole, I, well, there's this idea in, um, biology of aposemitism, and that is that, uh, there's animals out there with really bright contrasting stripes that tell a predator, hey, if you eat me, you're gonna get hurt. So with, um, bees, um, and wasps and other th- things, that black and, that black and yellow signal is kind of like a big bright warning sign to predators that if they eat something that is those colors, they'll probably get hurt. And how they learn that is they eat something like that for the first time. So usually it's like young birds or other predators. They'll eat that, they get stung, and they're like, oh boy, okay, I'm not going to eat anything that's got these bright yellow, black, or orange stripes on it again.
1: Ah, okay. But then these stripes can actually be really specific to certain populations, and that's what you studied, right? Right.
0: Yeah. So I was, um, what I was looking at, uh, for part of my dissertation at the University of Illinois was, um, mimicry patterns. So this other phenomenon that, um, biologists have seen, even like, you know, into the early 1800s, biologists noticed that butterflies specifically kind of in one geographic area, all kind of have very similar patterns. And the idea is that they have all these similar patterns, so predators don't have to learn multiple signals to not get eaten. And sometimes um, you can find, like, um, animals that are safe and not toxic at all are mimicking ones that are toxic. So there's a lot of ones that are really common around here in the United States are hoverflies. They're very commonly mistaken as bees. And actually, I was just, I just saw my Facebook memories. This picture that i posted of the secret life of bees dvd had a picture of a hoverfly on it and not a bee (laughs) because somebody mistook it as a bee so they're very convincing bee mimics and that whole the whole idea is that the bees come out the predators eat them they get stung and then the flies come out and they're like hey i'm a bee please don't eat me so some of them are not dangerous but with bumblebees what i was studying were these um What are called malarian mimicry. So it's all this stuff that's toxic and and can hurt you that converges on one common pattern so that predators only have to learn one thing to not eat. Ah, okay. And And so we're trying to see if there's any common elements in certain geographic areas
1: um, of these color patterns. And what was that process like? I I think I read or you told me that you actually drew hundreds of bees by hand. Like why did you have to draw them?
0: Yeah, so the it was kind of a really long process of figuring out how can we accurately and in a standardized way represent the different colors of all these bumblebees from around the world. And so we tried doing some imaging at first, but of uh, dead bee specimens, but they're very three dimensional, and sometimes their abdomens curl up under them, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes they're bigger, and sometimes they're smaller, and so it was really hard for us to standardize those images, trying to look at these elements. And so, basically, what we came up with was a template that was kind of like a coloring book. So I drew um, like a standardized bumblebee thorax, which is the middle part of their body, and then a standardized bumblebee abdomen. And that was kind of like my coloring book template for drawing each of the individual color patterns on the bees. And then I just took some museum specimens of every bumblebee species we could find. I think it was like 222 species. And then I drew multiple individuals of those species. So I yeah, I think I drew over 500 individual bumblebees and I used a standard template of color pencils to represent each of the colors that I was seeing in the bees.
1: Mm.
0: And what did you learn from that? Um, basically, what we found is that world, you know, if you try to look at all these elements across all these bees, there seem to be these, these standard um, pieces of the bee that are changing in each different parts of the world. So another part of this project was not only like looking at these um, mimicry complexes across the world, but also trying to understand what might be the evolutionary development of these color patterns. So what might be the genes that are controlling the expression of these different colors? So a lot of this work was inspired by work that was done on butterflies by Frederick Nyout um, where he tried to classify the patterns that were on the wings to see if we could get an insight into the the development and the genes that were being expressed to create all these variable patterns across wings huh. by just, you know, kind of cl- trying to figure out how you classify all these different patterns. And what we found is that most of the elements that make up all the color patterns that you see around the world for the most part, correspond to the body segments that they already have. So it's a really simple plan, um, that bumblebees have compared to like all the spots and eye patterns that you see in, um, in butterflies. And what's, what's my favorite thing is that, um, well, I really liked this project because I, I really love art, um, and just getting to draw bumblebees for science every day was just, I never, took advantage of that. And I love doing it so much, but also um, Heather Hines has been doing a lot of really amazing experiments. Heather Hines is a, a she was a, a student with me of Sydney Cameron's at Illinois. And now she's a professor at Penn state has been doing these awesome studies of color genetics in bumblebees and has found that a lot of these genes that are involved in just like the basic body template of a bumblebee are also responsible for all these crazy color patterns that you see around the world. And so this kind of confirming what we have seen
1: from me drawing all of them with colored pencils. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Um and I'm curious, do you have a favorite color pattern or a favorite bumblebee? Oh, yeah. So my well,
0: my favorite bumblebee of all time is Bombus Aphipiatus, which is the species I studied for my for my master's and for my dissertation um, I just really fell in love with it but probably my favorite color pattern of all time is a bumblebee called Bombus Rufofasciatus (laughs) or fasciatus Mm -hmm. which I've never seen in person because it lives in the Himalayan mountains and in Kashmir (laughs) but I've seen a dead one and it has this amazing gorgeous color pattern of Oranges and yellows and whites and reds. And I just think it's like the most beautiful bee. And it's on like my bucket list to see it alive someday in the field.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah, it seems like there are just so many really cool colors and patterns. And uh, we'll have to put some pictures up to show our listeners what some of these bees look like. I think I want to also, I want to shift into talking about conservation. I think that's something that our listeners will be really interested in. I guess I would be curious what scientists think are the most urgent questions to address, um, relating to bumblebees.
0: Yeah, um, I think, so we've been, um, having, uh, these meetings that we've been calling. Uh, bombus with two s's so like the genus bombus that bumblebees are in but with two s's and it's uh stands for <laughs> building our methods with sound science and it's this com congress that we've been having with bumblebee researchers worldwide to figure out what are the important conservation issues that we as the community can identify to study bumblebees and then also um what are is there a way we can standardize some of the methods we're using to not only understand conservation issues, but also um, just basic fundamental science about bumblebees. And some of the areas that we've identified in terms of conservation for understanding bumblebees is that um, we really want to launch, at least for the United States, a national monitoring method um, for consistently um surveying bumblebees in the wild um across the United States and doing it every year to understand how their populations might be fluctuating. And that's now actually happening. Um, Hollis Woodard, my postdoc advisor, is now heading up this national monitoring effort, which I think is really, really awesome. And so someday soon the uh the fish and fish and wildlife um And other government agencies and scientists, too, are going to work together to um, monitor bumblebee populations every year and see if we can identify specific regions where bumblebees need to be um, protected and conserved. And then also trying to identify maybe um, species, so not just geographic regions, but also particular species that we need to be working extra hard to conserve. Mm. And how are scientists planning to do that? So um, part of the this grant that Hollis is leading up is trying to figure out what are the methods that we can do to do that. Um, how Most of what it probably will involve is people going out and collecting bees and identifying them and seeing what's out there, but doing it um, consistently on a regular basis and then doing it every year to see how those numbers might change. Oh, okay. Um, and then in response to that, you know, we were also talking about, okay, so this national monitoring effort will help us figure out who's in trouble and where they're in trouble, but then how do we respond to that? And the Xerce Society is already doing um they're a uh, conservation organization for um, conserving invertebrate species. They have a lot of really awesome materials for what individual people can do, what farmers can do, um, what scientists can do to help conserve bumblebees, and they have like specific planting guides for different parts of the US, like what flowers can you grow to help conserve bumblebees, um what you can do in your own backyards, like leaving um bare patches of ground that bees can dig into um is actually really important providing nesting materials for them. Um, Just like dirt. Yeah, yeah. So bees, well, not just bumblebees, but um, a lot of ground nesting bees, they don't like to dig through mulch. um, And it's actually very hard for them to dig through it. And so just having bare patches of ground that they can access and dig into is, um, is actually a great way to help
1: them. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was definitely something I was going to ask about, because I think a lot of people will have on their mind, like if there's anything that they can do for bumblebees.
0: Yeah, that's one thing is like, um, uh don't over manicure your yards and do it in the name of conservation. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, um not raking up uh leaves because those leaves um the bees like to nest under leaf piles and grass piles, spe- bumblebees specifically. Um and then the so like not over manicuring your lawn, because some of that's natural, those natural elements that make a lawn maybe look a little untidy are actually very good for bees. And then the other thing is try to plant flowers that are going to bloom at different times of the year so that bees have a constant food source all year long.
1: Ah, uh, Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So think about what the bees need, and you have an excuse to be a little bit lax on your yard work. Yeah, and the Xerces
0: Society actually has signs you can um, buy that label your yard as pollinator habitat <laughs> so oh, your neighbors don't get mad at you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so what are some of the questions that you're interested in studying next?
0: Um, so my research program that I'm trying to build now at St Vincent College is um a little different than the heavy bumblebee focus that I used to have so I'm at a small liberal arts college, but we actually have a very um active research program with undergraduate students and on a faculty of uh a biology department of seven faculty, I'm the ecology and evolution expert, and so um I'm not making all of my students study bumblebees. I don't want to force them to study bumblebees if they don't want to. Um, But I encourage them to like find something they're really interested in about because I they know they're going to have a stake in it and they'll do a really good job with the project. So all my students are doing ecology evolution related projects and a lot of them have conservation applications, but they're not with bees. So I have one student who's going to start a project um looking at... uh the pathogens that are in bat poop. So my student, Sarah Maidment, she's really loves bats and cares a lot about bat conservation. So what we're going to do is we're going to send these little um, guano collection kits to bat sanctuaries in Pennsylvania. And then we're going to try to sequence DNA of parasites and pathogens from their poop and see what's infecting bats locally in Pennsylvania. And then um, I have another student that's, interested in looking at the effects of sunscreen on sea urchin development which is not something I ever thought was not a project I ever thought I'd be involved in um but uh her her name is Maggie Hines and she's going to be like um studying how sunscreen pollution in marine environments affects sea urchin development and then I have um So these are all my junior students that are going to be starting their projects in the fall. And then I also have another student that's interested in surveying the parasites and pathogens inside of tick populations in Pennsylvania. So my student, Rachel Keller, is going to go out um, and catch and trap ticks. And then we're going to extract DNA from inside their bodies and see if they are carrying Lyme disease, but also other parasites inside them. Ah, okay.
1: I don't think I would want to go looking for ticks, but.
0: Yeah, we, uh, our very last lab that I have for my invertebrate zoology class was testing out these drag methods to see if we could catch ticks, (laughs) which she was the only student in the class that was excited about it. So we just made like these big canvas cloths and you drag them over the ground and then ticks will think it's like a deer or a person and they'll jump onto the sheet. So we just dragged these big cloths surrounding. We caught three deer ticks.
1: Wow. Doesn't sound like they're actually that hard to catch. Sounds like they want to be caught.
0: Especially in Western Pennsylvania. They're just like, (laughs) they just kept popping onto the sheets.
1: What are you hoping to learn from that?
0: So we're hope we have a lot of, in Western Pennsylvania, at least at at St. Vincent, I know so many people personally that have that have had Lyme disease. Um, and so we're hoping to have a little better understanding at least locally around campus and then in like other areas of Western Pennsylvania, what the presence of Lyme disease is in the tick population, but also just like kind of understand what the ticks are that are even out there. Like we know we have deer ticks, but she also wants to study other species and whether or not they might be carrying, potential bacteria that might pose a threat to human health. So Rachel specifically is interested in
1: epidemiology, and so that, that's why she wanted to study insect-borne diseases. Ah, okay. So one thing I also mentioned in the intro is that you're really into roller derby, Um, and how have you sort of entwined that with your bee persona and love of bees and, and all of that? So...
0: I was trying to come everybody well not everyone but a lot of people in roller derby have pseudonyms that they play under mine is Pollinator and that came up at a party a roller derby party um at Joe Holly's house where I was just talking like endlessly and probably annoyingly about how much I love pollinators and bees and somebody suggested oh that should be your roller derby name you should be the pollinator And so that's where I got my name. And then I started to use pollinator as like a character to get kids to care about bees. So during National Pollinator Week, we'd have a farmer's market booth and I would put on my roller skates that have bees on them. And then I dress up like a bee and skate around the farmer's market, teaching kids about bees. And now (laughs) I've added like a new like alter ego to roller derby. Um, So. Everything in Pittsburgh that you might, you might know is like everything here is black and yellow. All the sports teams, the Steelers, the Penguins, the Pirates, everybody's black and yellow, which I love. I, you know, I don't really care about football or hockey or baseball, but (laughs) I do love black and yellow because it's the color of bees. And so I use this opportunity to convince my roller derby team whose colors are also black and yellow that we should have a bee mascot. And so I bought this like giant fluffy bee costume. And during our games, when I'm not playing roller derby, I put on the bee mascot costume and I answer audience questions about roller derby and or bees.
1: Oh, cool. (laughs) What's the best question that you've got gotten?
0: Uh, some, well, so I mostly was just doing it to like mascot and run around and then, People just started asking me bee questions as like a joke. And I don't think they expected me to know the answers to them. (laughs) So some guy in the audience was like, hey, Derby, does your stinger get pulled out when you sting people? And I said, no, it doesn't because I'm a bumblebee and bumblebees have smooth stingers so they don't get stuck and they can sting you multiple times honeybees have barbed stingers, and they're the ones whose stingers get stuck in you. And he was like, oh, I did not expect you to know anything about
1: bees. (laughs) That's great. Actually, I didn't know that either. I didn't realize that bumblebees had smooth stingers, but they're pretty gentle, right?
0: Oh, yeah. They're really like, I will go up to bees on flowers and pet them because they, they really only will try to attack you if you end up on a nest and you've got guard bees that are that's their job is to protect the nest and they might so if you you know run over a colony with your lawnmower, mower you will probably get stung or if you try to squash one or catch it in a net which is how i usually get stung <laughs> <laughs> do you how often do you get stung very infrequently people are surprised that i have not been stung more like even working with live colonies where they do have those guard beads like Guard bees, as long as you're working with the red light, which they can't see, so they think it's complete darkness. They're very, very calm. So I think I've probably, you know, I've been staying bees for a decade, and I think I've probably been stung less than a hundred times. Whoa,
1: you've been stung a hundred times? Well, less than less hundred. <laughs> yeah, that still seems like a good, good bit.
0: Yeah, I guess that's <laughs> yeah. It's more than like an average person, but seems kind of like I figured when I started on bees, I would be getting stung a lot more often than
1: that. Yeah, that makes sense. One last thing that I want to get to is since we are all kind of sheltering in place during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I'm wondering how how this time, um, how not being at the lab and not being able to go out into the field, how this is affecting your research?
0: Well, I was supposed to go out to California this summer to um, help finish up my USDA NIFA project, but that's not happening anymore. Um, a lot of samples that we've sent off for like sequencing of DNA, they're just kind of sitting still again <laughs> because those places have been closed there because they're not considered essential. Um I'm teaching online now, which is like, I've never done before in my life, but I'm trying to make my lecture videos really fun. Anybody can go on YouTube and watch my lecture videos for my general biology or my invertebrate zoology class, but they're a lot of work.
1: Um, (laughs) We'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes.
0: Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I try to, I try to spice them up for my students, but like, you know, I really wanted to be at a liberal arts college because I love interacting and teaching students and the the huge part of my day which was just letting students come in and talk to me and ask me questions that's gone and it's, it's kind of depressing um I had well I had a, a live bumblebee colony that was supposed to be shipped out um the week this all started and I had to call and cancel that I was like oh I can't have bees in my house like I can't, if I can't keep them at school they're gonna have to go in my house <laughs> I really don't want my guest room to become a bumblebee rearing room.
1: So, um how where do you how do you rear a bumblebee colony in the lab?
0: Um uh, so there are companies that will produce bumblebees for commercial pollination. Um so like if you are growing tomatoes or peppers or something like that in a greenhouse, one thing you can do to pollinate them is you can just use a tuning fork. So tomatoes, they have these things called um poricidal anthers which means they need to be buzzed and shaken like a salt shaker so the pollen will come out and if they don't get that buzz then they won't get pollinated. So one thing you can do is you can just grab a tuning fork like one for music. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. I actually just ordered one for one of my students projects. Um yeah, you just like you ring the tuning fork and it vibrates the flowers and the pollen comes out and then you can use a paintbrush to to pollinate the flowers. Or you can just get a colony of bumblebees and they'll do it for you. Oh. And And so those, those companies also sell bumblebees to researchers. Um, and so that's the most common way that people, um, study bees in the lab. Okay. But
1: you would actually keep them inside?
0: Yeah. So they come in, um, like a, maybe like one foot by one foot cardboard box, um, and you just keep them in that cardboard box and then you can just, um what also comes underneath them is like a big bag of sugar syrup that they can drink from. And then um you can supplement it with uh pollen. So I have like a, there's like a standard pollen cookie recipe that bumblebee researchers use to make pollen patties for the bees to feed on. Oh, that's not something I ever would have expected yeah so uh most of if you're studying bees in the lab, we usually feed them honeybee collected pollen so if you've ever gone to a grocery store and seen bee pollen for sale, that's um pollen that's been collected from honeybee colonies so they'll put like this mesh on the entrance of the colony so when the bees come in it knocks the pollen off their legs and falls through and then they collect those trays of pollen and then they sell it in grocery stores so what bumblebee researchers do is we buy that honeybee collected pollen. And then we grind it up and mix it with sugar syrup and make like these kind of like pollen cookies that you can then put into the colony and feed to the bumblebees. Oh, so
1: you actually bake for your bees.
0: Yeah. And sometimes um if you're so um the experiment I was talking about where I fed two different types of flower pollen to the bumblebees, that was with queen bumblebees. And if you're trying to get a queen to start a colony and lay eggs, she needs a lot of pollen. and. But sometimes that pollen can go kind of stale. So what I would do is make these tiny little, maybe like the size of an M&M, like a peanut m M&M, and oh. I'd make like a pollen ball. And then I would um, stick a toothpick in it and then dip it in uh, beeswax so that it would stay fresh for her. Oh, oh that's great. It's like a
1: pollen popsicle.
0: Yeah. And then, and then that keeps the wax, keeps the moisture in. And then she also um, can repurpose that honey bee beeswax um, to make cells in her new colony.
1: Oh, okay. Wow. There's a lot that goes into taking care of bees. Yeah. I think we're nearing the end of our time, but I have one last question for you. And um, yeah, I'd just like to know what's the one thing that you'd want everyone to know about bumblebees. Oh, hmm.
0: Probably the most important thing would be that there's not just one species of bumblebees. There's at least 250 species of them and that they live all over the world. Uh, And what else? Bumblebees can be really, really friendly. And unless you're trying to kill them, you really, really don't need to be afraid of them.
1: Yeah, that's a great thought to end on. Uh, Michelle, thanks so much for sharing about pollinators and also all this roller derby fun um, and, and raising bees. And thanks for being on the show.
0: Oh, yeah, no problem. I love preaching about the bees anytime I can.
1: Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders.